بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Alhamdulillah, last week we began our discussion about one of the pivotal moments in the seerah of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, that being the event known as Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, or the peace treaty or armistice of Al-Hudaybiyah. And that is the name that it is given in the books of seerah. Uh, in some of the books of Sirah, they also call it Ghazwatul Hudaybiyah because it almost became a Ghazwa. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives it another name in the Quran. In the Quran, Allah does not mention the name Al Hudaybiyah at all. But He calls this event Al Fathul Mubin, the clear and manifest victory. Inna fatahna laka fathan mubina. Allah says in the beginning of Surah Al-Fatih, Verily we have given you a clear victory. And we mentioned last week how many people hear that verse and they tend to think of Fathu Mecca, the conquest of Mecca, the opening of Mecca. But this verse is actually referring to the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. And many of the ayat in that chapter are detailing the events that happened during this peace treaty. And we mentioned the background last week and what led up to it. We mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ had a dream. And in the dream, he was performing Umrah. And some people were shaving their heads and others were cutting their hair. And this dream was a glad tidings that they would perform the Umrah. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed him this dream because dreams are a form of wahi for the anbiya and he does not designate when that umrah is going to be that's a that's an important point to make so the prophet sallallahu alaihi conveyed this dream and gathered between 14 to 1500 of the muslims to all go for umrah so they entered the ihram at dhul hulaifa which is the miqat point for the people of medina there he donned the ihram garb and they put the qala'id over the camels and the cows, these garlands. And he also sent out a spy from there to go to Mecca ahead of the group to see what Quraysh is up to. And we mentioned this last week. What is the reason why they put the garlands around the camels and the cattle? Who knows why they did that? Exactly. So that is the tradition. Whenever they would uh, set aside the animals used for the, the slaughter after the rites, they would put the garlands to, se to separate them from the other animals. This is also a signal for those people who see them making their way south. They'll see them from a distance and know they're wearing the ihram. They have the animals with the garlands, so it clearly communicates the intention of their journey. It's not for a battle, it is for performing the Umrah. So he sent out a spy 
to go see what Quraysh are up to. And the spy makes his way south, sees what's going on, and then he returns back to report the information. And he says that the Quraysh have gathered an entire army to come out against you because they want to wage war on you and prevent you from reaching the Kaaba. And this also tells you what we've noted so many times before covering the seerah, that word travels very fast. They didn't have WhatsApp, they didn't have internet or telephones, but they have their network of scouts and Bedouins who are traveling, who spot them far away, who bring that information back to them. People talk, so they knew that they're making their way even before they had left, or right at the time they left, the miqat point of Dhul Hulayfa. So the Prophet ﷺ receives this news and he fulfills the command of Allah Ta'ala, وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ Consult them in the matter. And so he consulted with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq anhu. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said that they should continue on the journey and fight if they must, if they try to prevent them from making their umrah. And having set out on this journey, the Prophet asks anyone if anyone in the crowd knows of an alternative route instead of the main route to Mecca. So they want to go, but they want to avoid getting ambushed along the road. So some from, someone from Banu Aslam among them said he knows an alternative route to get there. And so they went on this very rugged path off the beaten track, going through different mountain passes to get eventually to Mecca. So as they're going along this beaten track, the Sira works tell us that as they were making their way, they came to this trail. And once they reached this trail, the camel of the Prophet ﷺ, Qaswa, decides to kneel down on the spot. And people are chiding the camel, nudging it to get up and go forward, but it's not budging. And so they're beginning to complain, what's wrong with the camel? It's not moving. And the Prophet ﷺ says, the camel, Qaswa, is actually held back by Allah Ta'ala just as the elephant of Abraha was held back. You know, there's a wisdom behind this. And so he directs the camel to get back up. And the camel, Qaswa, gets back up. Only this time, the camel changes direction instead of going directly towards Mecca from that trail and goes off to an area called Al-Hudaybiyah. Al-Hudaybiyah, we mentioned, is uh, the site of a, uh, an old well. Uh, also, it's called Hudaybiyah because they said there's an old tree there. It's a small village, uh, a small area, part of which goes into the Haram territory. But the majority of this tribal area is outside of the Haram territory. So they go to Al-Hudaybiyah instead of going directly to Mecca from the alternative route. Now, we mentioned last week that there was an individual by the name of Budayl ibn Warqa al-Khuza'i who went out to scout and see what's going on closer to Mecca to see what the Quraysh are up to. And he's from Khuza'a, and this comes up again and again in the seerah, the individuals from Khuza'a who are offering their services and help to the Prophet providing information and intelligence. Now Khuza'a, they're not all Muslims. And individuals in this story, they're not even Muslim. But they were allied toward the Prophet ﷺ. Or at the very least, we would say they were a neutral party. 
they had sympathies with the Prophet They did not take him in the Muslims in enmity. And so they would offer their services and arbitrate. And they often appear as this neutral party in the negotiations and things going on between the Muslims and Quraysh. So Budayl ibn Warqa al-Khuza'i, he goes and scouts the area closer to Mecca and comes back and he says, I saw Ka'ab ibn Lu'ay and uh, Amr ibn Lu'ay camped besides the waters of Al-Hudaybiyah. They brought with them the she-camels who were still nursing their young and they planned to fight you and prevent you from approaching the Ka'bah. Now one thing to understand about this statement is that when uh, Budayl mentions that he saw Ka'ab ibn Lu'ay and Amr ibn Lu'ay, he's not saying that he just saw two people who happened to have some camels and that these two individuals are planning to fight the Muslims. That doesn't make any sense. How are two people going to fight 1,500 Muslims? But what we learn from the seerah is that by saying, mentioning these names, Ka'ab ibn Lu'ay and Amr ibn Lu'ay, it's a euphemism for a large body of Quraysh because the Quraysh line goes through those two individuals. And so it's a way of saying that the Quraysh from the various clans, they're assembling in that area they know you're here and they are planning to attack you. So that was the news that he brought to the Prophet ﷺ. So he communicates to Warqa that they have not come to fight and that he's willing to delay his Umrah for a period of time in order to enter into a sulh, a sulh being a peace treaty. But if they insist on fighting them, they're going to defend themselves. They're going to fight back. So this is interesting because, as we mentioned in the very beginning, Allah Ta'ala gave the dream of the, to the Prophet Sallallahu seeing that they're making Umrah. And here he's communicating the willingness to delay the Umrah. So the fact that the dream doesn't designate exactly when the Umrah is going to happen, there's no guarantee that it's going to be this time. The Muslims think that's the case. They assume that's the case. They're making their way there. But that's an assumption. And here he says he's willing to delay the Umrah if they can enter into a peace treaty. So this is, this is setting up the stage for what's going to happen. And this is going to cause a bit of, uh, how can we sensitively communicate it? It's going to cause a, a bit of feelings, I guess you could say, uh, among many of the Muslims who felt that, no, we were going for Umrah. Why aren't we going for Umrah? That's ultimately what happens. They don't get to make Umrah. So from that, I was thinking about this earlier today. From that, there's something you can derive. Because the seerah is filled with uh, moral lessons, ethical lessons, spiritual lessons, all sorts of lessons. One of the lessons you can derive from this is that there are some things that are good for Muslims. And then there are some things that are good for Islam but not necessarily what a Muslim perceives to be good for them materially or what they want to do in that moment, right? A lot of times people think, well, if it's good for Muslims, it's good for Islam. That's not always the case. That's not always the case. In this case, what is good for Islam is the spread of Islam, that the message of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah spreads greater What's good for Muslims in this situation is what? It's performing Umrah. 
getting a chance to perform Umrah after several years of battles and struggles and sacrifices. So what is good for Muslims is one thing, making their Umrah, but what ultimately is good for Islam is the treaty and what, le- and what it led to, even if that meant them not making their Umrah. So we have to think sometimes, uh, this happens in the political sphere. You know, we think, oh, what's good for us? Well, we have to think what is good for us, but also what is good for Islam. And if there happens to be a contradiction between the two, then we should not confuse what we think is good for us as what is always good for Islam. Sometimes what is good for Islam requires that we rethink our position and what we want to do for the benefit of spreading Islam versus any material comfort or what makes us feel good. But that's for another topic. So he communicates this willingness to enter into a sulh. So Budayl ibn Warqa takes that message back to Quraysh. And one of the people there who is not from Quraysh offered to be a representative, an emissary, if you will, on behalf of Quraysh. His name, Urwa ibn Mas'ud. So before we get to that, we have to mention those individuals who were near Hudaybiyah of Quraysh. Budayl said that they're gathering and they want to fight you. He goes and communicates the message of Sulh to Quraysh, but that group is still there at Hudaybiyah. And the Sirah reports mention, and also it's in Sahih Muslim, that before those negotiations took place, that, that body of Quraysh encamped at Hudaybiyah actually tried to launch a surprise attack against the Muslims at Fajr time with about 80 people. But this 80 versus 1500, so it was ultimately unsuccessful. The Muslims had guards positioned everywhere during the night. And as those 80 individuals made their way to do this surprise attack and raid on the Muslim camp, they found that they were completely surrounded by the Muslims. So they were all captured, all 80 of them, without any bloodshed. And they were brought to the Prophet ﷺ. And he sent them all back to Mecca without suffering any harm whatsoever. Now that incident of the attempted raid is mentioned in Surah Al-Fatih as well. Allah Ta'ala mentions in this chapter detailing Al-Hudaybiyah and the events surrounding it. وَهُوَ الَّذِي كَفَ أَيْدِيَهُمْ عَنْكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ عَنْهُمْ بِبَطْنِ مَكَّةَ مِنْ بَعْدِ أَنْ أَظْفَرَكُمْ عَلَيْهِمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرًا He is the one, Allah, who held back their hands from you and held back your hands from them in the valley of Mecca, meaning Hudaybiyah, near Mecca, after giving you the upper hand over a group of them. And Allah is all-seeing of what you do. So that ayah is talking about that attempted attack. So notice here that Allah Ta'ala is reminding the Muslims that not only were they, the Muslims, spared from their attack, but also the would-be attackers were spared from the hands of the Muslims. Because what would have happened if those attackers made their way to the encampment of the Muslims at Fajr time and 80 versus 1500 and they were completely wiped out? What would have happened? Do you think there would have been a peace treaty in the, in, in the first place? No. The peace treaty would only happen if those people made it out alive. And the fact that they were stopped 
surrounded and just sent back peacefully to Mecca eases the way to that sulh. So now we come to the story of the negotiations. The seerah details back and forth negotiations between members of the Muslim community and individuals either from Quraysh or allied with Quraysh and this back and forth. And we, we're, we, ha- we find some very interesting stories here. So Budair bin Warqa, we mentioned, goes to Quraysh. And what he said to them was, Ya Quraysh, you are being hasty with this man, meaning the Prophet ﷺ. He hasn't come to fight. He has only come to visit the sacred house and to honor its sanctity. So he's communicating very clearly the intentions of the Muslims. Quraysh know the intentions of the Muslims, but what is their response? Quraysh say, by Allah, we will never let him enter Mecca and allow the Arabs, you know, the general body of the Arabs, say that he has the upper hand over us. They would consider their allowance as a recognition of defeat, and they don't want to concede. So they say, no, we're not going to allow him whatsoever. So as Budayr bin Warqa communicates this message to Quraysh, there was a man among them who is not Qurayshi. He is from Banu Thaqif. Where is Banu Thaqif located, this tribe? Where are they living? In Ta'if. Banu Thaqif are centered around Ta'if. And Ta'if and Mecca, they're close to each other, and there's always been a bit of rivalry between the two. But there was a man among Quraysh from Banu Thaqif by the name of Urwa ibn Mas'ud. And we say now, radiallahu anhu, because he becomes a Muslim. But in this stage of the story, he's not yet a Muslim. And he offers to be a negotiator, a, an emissary on behalf of Quraysh to go to the Muslim camp and talk about the terms of a peace treaty. So after some back and forth, the Sira gives us several narrations of this back and forth conversation he had with the elders of Quraysh, where he's asking Quraysh different rhetorical questions about his own honesty, his own good reputation, and his own goodwill for Quraysh. And he's establishing before he even volunteers himself that, listen, you and I, we have a history. You know me, I know you, you trust me. You know from my track record that I have goodwill for you, that I'm looking out for your interest. So because of that, allow me to go and speak on your behalf, even though he's not from Quraysh. Let me go and speak on your behalf to look after your interest and negotiate some terms with the Prophet, with, well, he wouldn't say the Prophet, but with Muhammad And so Quraysh agree. They allow him to be their representative. Uru bin Mas'ud, he goes to Hudaybiyah to meet the Prophet As soon as he gets there and meets him, the Prophet tells him, exactly what Budayl bin Warqa was told and exactly what Budayl communicated to Quraysh. The same statement that he's willing to delay the Umrah and enter into a sulh with Quraysh, a peace treaty. Now, Urwa's response wasn't very pleasant. It records a very harsh response. He says, O Muhammad, if you destroy your people, 
Have you ever heard of any Arab who annihilated his own people before you? Quraysh have sworn an oath that you will not enter Mecca by force ever. And by Allah, I see these people with you, these, you know, the companions, I see these people with you abandoning you in defeat tomorrow. If fighting happens, he's basically telling them, if it comes to fighting, I'm looking at these people, I don't, they're not going to stick around. They're going to flee you. He's looking at it from a, a, a tribal mentality. You know, he's Thaqafi, and here are Quraysh in Mecca, and here are the Ansar from the Aus and the Khazraj, and some of the Bedouins that were with them. And, you know, he doesn't see the bonds of Islam. He just sees tribes. It's like, they're not from your people, so they're not going to stick around when the going gets tough and a battle starts. So that's what he said. In another narration, Urwa said to the Prophet you say that you are inviting people to Allah, but then you come here with a group of strangers. Who are the strangers? The Ansar, largely the Ansar. You come with a group of strangers and you break the ties of kinship and you break the sanctity of the Haram and you intend to spill blood. This is, these are some of the harsh words that Urwa said. And one narration mentions that when he said these harsh words, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu got very, very angry. Who is ordinarily a very soft-spoken and gentle man. But he got very angry. And his ghayra for the Prophet manifested in him insulting Urwa with very, very harsh language. I won't repeat what he said. We would consider it vulgar language. And the ulama have commented on that hadith, such as Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, and noted that there are some situations where one could use what is ordinarily vulgar language if it serves a purpose of pushing people back or preventing a, a harm or you know, different scenarios. So he uttered very harsh language. So... Urwa is sitting next to the Prophet ﷺ. And to really understand how these negotiations go, you, you have to understand a bit about uh, Arabian history and how the tribal elders and representatives would negotiate among themselves. Uh, because we have a narration where Urwa is sitting next to the Prophet ﷺ, and as they begin to speak, Urwa takes hold of the Prophet's beard. Now, you might read that or hear it and think that he's grabbing the beard and pulling it forcefully. He's not doing that. He's not grabbing it violently by any means. But this was one of the customs of the Arabs when the tribal elders would negotiate. They would sit close to each other. They would convene privately. And one would just take hold and they would talk like that. But as he's doing this, which is an established custom, some of the Muslims didn't even like that. And one narration mentions that Al-Mughira ibn Shu'ba sees that and he knocks Urwa's hand away. He didn't want him to do that. He knocks the hand away. And I did the signal with my hand. It wasn't his hand. It was actually the handle of his sword. So he takes the, the handle of his sword, holding it this way in the sheath, and he knocks it aside. Like, How dare you? How dare you? And this is what he did. And he says, keep your hand away from the Prophet's beard before you lose it. 
So, you know, tempers are rising. It's a very sensitive moment. He is an, he is an emissary and they're protected, but feelings are there. So Arwa, he responds to Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah and he says, how cruel and how harsh are you? Now you have to understand the background to that too. There's a subtext here. Because Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah, before his Islam, he was actually a bit of a highway robber. So he has a reputation as being a bit violent. So there's that too. So anyhow, they're having this back and forth. And the Prophet ﷺ responds to the accusations of Urwa bin Mas'ud and says to him, I have only come to fulfill the ties of kinship. I haven't come to break them. And I have only come to better the deen of my people. That was his response. So Urwa is now in this environment. For the very first time in his life, he is in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, and he is in the presence of the Muhajirun and the Ansar who were on this journey. So now he actually has a chance to observe them and watch how they are. So as he's in this moment, what you might call a lull in the negotiations, he's observing the companions. And he sees things that he has never seen before. And he reports this back to Quraysh when he returns to them. He was very moved by what he saw from the Sahaba in terms of their adab, their respect, their etiquette, their reverence and honor for the Prophet ﷺ. So he goes back to Quraysh after seeing these things and he describes to them exactly what he saw. And this hadith is, re is recorded by uh, Bukhari and others. He goes back to Quraysh to report the negotiation. And he says, what kind of people are these I was sent to? What kind of people are they? By Allah, I have been in delegations sent to kings, delegations sent to the Qaisar, the Caesar, the Byzantine authority. I've been in delegations sent to the Kisra, the the Persian authority. But I have never seen a king who is exalted and respected the way his companions treat him, how they treat Muhammad. He says, by Allah, he does not even spit except that it falls into the hands of one of them. So he's describing the wudu. As he makes the wudu and spits out the water, they're rushing to catch it. And they then take it and they rub their face with it and their body with it. And if he commands them, they hasten to carry out the order. They rush to carry it out. And when he makes the wudu, the, the washing before his prayer, they almost fight over the wadu, the excess water from the wudu. And when they speak in his presence, they lower their voices and out of all Haiba before him, they never stare directly at him. So he's reporting exactly what he saw from the adab of the Sahaba towards the Prophet. Now we have a really interesting comment made by Al Hafiz ibn Hajar al Asqalani in his commentary on Sahih al Bukhari. In his commentary on this hadith, Al Hafiz ibn Hajar says that this hadith contains a proof that the spit 
and the cut hair are both tahir, they're both pure, legally speaking, they're ritually pure. It also contains a proof, he says, for the permissibility of seeking blessings from the pure remnants of the righteous. And then he says, perhaps the Sahaba did this in front of Urwa in an exaggerated fashion in order to remove from his mind any notions that he had, any idea that he had that they were afraid and that they would run away from any battle. So he says in the commentary that their actions around the Prophet ﷺ, maybe they were a bit exaggerated for the purpose of showing Urwa bin Mas'ud what they're all about. And he says, it's as if their behavior was saying to Urwa, bilisan al-hal, as we say in Arabic, whoever loves their leader in such a way, and whoever holds their leader in such awe, how can you imagine that they're going to run away from him and give him to his enemy? So that's one way of reading it. So he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and sees these people and thinks they're going to abandon him. But when he goes back to Quraysh, he realizes they're never going to give him up. They're never going to abandon him. And although they're from various tribes, seeing the adab and the awe that they had, he knew they would fight to the death. So after he tells Quraysh what he saw, he says to them, I have measured them for you. And I'm giving you my estimation of them after what I observed. Know that if you wish for the sword, they will give you what you wish. They will give you the sword in return, if that's what you want. If you want to fight, they're going to fight. I have seen a group who doesn't care what happens to them if their sahib, their companion, meaning the Prophet ﷺ, is harmed. They don't care what happens to them if he is harmed. Even the women amongst them would never hand him over, whatever the cost. Take my advice, he says. I fear that you will not be able to win over him. And besides, he is a man who has come to this sacred house wishing to honor it and with sacrificial animals. But instead, he's being denied, denied, and prevented. So this is his message back to Quraysh. How do you think the Quraysh took that message? Do you think they were happy with it or upset? Well, they were upset. He went pretty much on their side, and he comes back saying, no, you should let him make their umrah. It's good. Don't try to fight because they're ready. So when Quraysh hears this, they become very upset and angry with Urwa, and they say to him, if only someone else besides you had said this, we're not going to allow him this year. And that was basically the end of the story of Urwa and his negotiations. They didn't accept it. Now we say to Urwa, radiallahu anhu, although at this time he wasn't yet Muslim, he would become a Muslim three years later. Three years later. And when he embraced Islam, we find in the seerah narrations which say that the Prophet ﷺ was actually worried for him because he was among his people in Ta'if and they weren't yet Muslims and there was still antagonism and problems and he was worried for the safety of Urwa bin Mas'ud. And so 
he goes back to his people. He didn't really care about any personal threats to his safety. He goes back to his people of Banu Thaqif. And he even tries to invite them to Islam. But they reject him. And one narration says that there among his people, one morning, he was on the roof of his house. And he called the Adhan for Fajr. And as he's on the roof praying by himself, an individual from his own people see him praying on the roof and they fire an arrow at him and it strikes him while he is in Salat and he dies from those wounds. So he was actually a shaheed not very long after he became a Muslim. And so we say radiallahu anhu. Now there's a really interesting narration about his martyrdom. He was killed in this state and when the news of this reached the Prophet wasallam. He said about Urwa, Urwa is like one of the Alu Yasin. One of the Alu Yasin. What is he talking about there? He's actually referencing some ayat in Surah Yasin that speaks about an individual who was in a very similar situation to Urwa bin Mas'ud. In those ayat, Allah Ta'ala says, وَجَاءَ مِنْ أَقْصَ الْمَدِينَةِ رَجُلٌ يَسْعَى then, from the farthest end of the city, a man came rushing and he advised, O oh my people, follow the messengers. Follow those who ask no reward of you and who are rightly guided. And why should I not worship the one who has created me and to whom you will all be returned? He says, How could I take besides him other gods whose intercession would not be of any benefit to me, nor could they save me if the most compassionate intended to harm me? He says, I certainly believe in your Lord, so listen to me. He says, I would be clearly astray if I did that, and I do believe in your Lord, so listen to me. He says, and he was killed, the people killed him. And as he's in the final moments before his death, this individual says that he was, it says that he was told by the malaika, udukhul al-jannah, enter jannah. And he says, if only my people knew of how my Lord has forgiven me and made me one of the honorable. This is one of the individuals of Yasin, mentioned by the Prophet wasallam. And so you see here that the Prophet ﷺ describes Urwa ibn Mas'ud as being like that individual who went to his people, who called them to Islam, and they responded by killing him. And at the very end, he just wants their guidance. He doesn't want bad for them. He wants good for them. And he's receiving the glad tidings of the angel that he's forgiven. And he says, would that my people knew of how my Lord has forgiven me and made me one of the honorable. So that is the story of Urba Mas'ud. It's a very short story. 
we've told this the whole story of Urwa and the Seerah. That's it. And that happens three years later. So we know that his, his offer is refused. He goes back to Quraysh and they don't like to, what he said. So what happened is that you understand the tribal dynamics. Urwa represents whom? Banu Thaqif. So that's a whole tribe there that because they rejected Urwa, Banu Thaqif basically pulled out of this situation. This means that the numbers of people who are possibly willing to fight to stop them, the Muslims, are now thinning out. So the whole tribe is basically withdrawn its support because they rejected and were rude to Urwa bin Mas'ud. So now Banu Thaqif is out. It's just Quraysh and one other. So they decide to use this opportunity, the Muslims decide to use this opportunity to send a delegate of their own to negotiate. Quraysh sent Urwa. Now it's time for the Prophet ﷺ to send one of their own to negotiate. So he sends an individual by the name of Khirash bin Umayyah. Now Khirash bin Umayyah is from Khuza'a. We mentioned them earlier. Because Budair bin Warqa is from Khuza'a and so was this individual Khirash ibn Umayyah. He's from Khuza'a. He's not from the Muhajirun. He's not from the Ansar. And they are seen as outsiders and neutral. So a neutral negotiator perhaps will have a more, more impact in negotiation than someone from their own, from Quraysh, from the Muhajirun. So he sent, and the Prophet sends Khirash on one of his own camels, one of the Prophet's own camels named Thalab. So you have to understand the way this works because we read the seerah and we're so distant from that time and how things worked. They didn't have cars. And it was known that if you're, if you're on a camel, people could recognize the camel perhaps in the way we recognize cars. You know, you have a car, you drive up to the masjid, and we see you day in and day out for the salawat and for Jumu'ah. So when we see the car part, we know it belongs to you. So what's going to happen if your car pulls up and someone else gets out? We recognize whose car it is, but we see someone else in it. And likewise, the Quraysh recognized the camel as belonging to the Prophet ﷺ, but is being ridden by Khirash bin Umayyah. So they know he's coming on behalf of the Muslims. But they're upset, and they are intent on preventing the Muslims from getting any closer. They don't want them to make their Umrah. So when they see him coming on the camel, a crowd gathers around Khirash, and they begin to attack the camel. They attack it, they wound it, they even hamstring it, cutting the tendons in the back, and they knock Khirash off. And they're about to kill him until finally someone from his own people of Khuza'a who was in Mecca at the time, came and calmed the situation down. So they sent Khirash back and there was no negotiation whatsoever. It was just rejected, rebuffed, just like that. So back to the drawing board, as we say. Oro has been rebuffed. The negotiator on behalf of the Muslims has been attacked. He couldn't even negotiate. Now in the seerah, we find in the collection of Ibn Hisham and others, a narration that says that at this time, Quraysh had sent a couple of other individuals to negotiate on their behalf after Urwa ibn Mas'ud. 
Now the Prophet ﷺ called one of these negotiators deceitful. And he called the other negotiator a person of ibadah and tanassuk, a person uh, who was very devoted to pious practices. The first one who was deceitful, who was called deceitful, is a person by the name of Mikraz ibn Hafs. And Mikraz ibn Hafs heard the Prophet ﷺ say exactly what Budayr ibn Warqa communicated before him. That they, wish, they if they want, we can delay their Umrah and we enter into a peace treaty. The second person who was described as a person of worship and devotion was an individual named Hulays ibn Al-Qama of Banu Kinana. <coughs> Banu Kinana is not Quraysh. Now this individual, it says in the seerah that he respected the rights of Umrah. You know those people who, they just really respect the sacred rights, they take them very seriously. Everything connected with the haram, with the sacred rights of their Umrah, with the sacrificial animals, the, way, the proper decorum and protocol, he took that stuff very seriously. And so when he goes to act on behalf of Quraysh as a negotiator, he sees all of these animals that, are have, that have the qala'id, the, the garlands, and he cries out, they must not be prevented from the sacred house. Once they've been consecrated, dedicated for sacrifice, it, it has to be done. How can you just turn these people away? So when he sees that, he didn't even enter into negotiations. Just seeing that alone was enough for him to go back to Quraysh and say that they should not be prevented. They should not be prevented because look, they have the animals, they're ready. How can you turn them away? Because he took their Umrah very seriously. And he wasn't even Muslim. So when he gets back and tells Quraysh this, Quraysh got very upset and they said to him, Ijlis, you're just sit down, you're just a lowly Bedouin. He's not Qurayshi, he's not from them. He's from Banu Kinana. Hulayth is, is called a, a lowly Bedouin. They're insulting him right in his face. So he gets angry and he says, Wallahi, us Banu Kinana, we didn't become your allies for this. We didn't become your allies to stop people from performing the Umrah. I swear by Allah, Either you allow Muhammad what he came to do, or I will rally all of my people of Banu Kinana against you. So then he left. Quraysh said, leave us be Hulays, and we're going to decide amongst ourselves what we're going to do. Urwa ibn Mas'ud was rebuffed. Banu Thaqif is now pulled out. Hulays ibn Alqama was insulted to his face. And what happened now? Banu Kinana pulled out. So now... It's just the Quraysh. Two major tribes have now pulled their support and Quraysh are standing alone. Banu Thaqif is gone and Banu Kinana is gone. They're on their own. And so now we come to the story where the Muslims send another negotiator. So just keeping track, Urwa goes first. Then it was Quraysh from, from Banu Khuza'a who came as a representative of the Muslims. He was attacked. And then Quraysh sent two different individuals. And now it's the time for the Muslims to attempt to send their own representative again. So the decision was made to send one of their own. 
And when we say one of their own, we mean sending from the Muslims one of Quraysh, from their own people. So the neutral parties didn't work, so they're thinking, let's send someone from their own. They have the ties of kinship and tribal loyalty. And so the Prophet ﷺ decides to send Umar bin Khattab anhu. Umar anhu, he was honest about his reality and the situation that might unfold. Umar anhu says, Ya Rasulullah, I worry about the vengeance of Quraysh and there's no one in Mecca to protect me. They know of my enmity towards them so he's worried that if he goes alone, there's no one else among the clansmen who's going to protect him if they decide to attack him. And he knows and they know that they have some history and enmity and some fighting. So he says to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, may I suggest someone else who will have more influence than them? Who is that person? Sayyiduna Uthman ibn Affan anhu. This was a very wise choice. A very wise choice because Uthman radiallahu anhu is from the clan of Abdul Shams. Who else is from Banu Abdul Shams? None other than the de facto chief and ruler of Quraysh at the time, Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan is from Abdul Shams, and so was Uthman. This is the Umawi line. So now, this is a good suggestion because there are stronger ties of kinship between the two of them and he is a very good negotiator, there's a better chance. And so the Prophet accepts that suggestion of Umar and he calls for Uthman anhu and he says, go to Quraysh and call them to Islam. Go and make da'wah. So you see it's not just a negotiation, it's also an opportunity to bring someone from the same tribal affiliation as Abu Sufyan and invite them to Islam. Invite them to Islam and inform them, he said, that we do not come to fight anyone. Rather, we come to visit the sacred house in respect of its sanctity. We have sacrificial animals, which we will sacrifice and then leave. That was the message to take back to Quraysh. Then the Prophet ﷺ gave him some more specific instructions. Remember that there were still some Muslims living in Mecca that were not able to make the hijrah to Medina. Musadha'afeen, people who were in a weak state, unable to make the hijrah. Some of whom were even concealing their Islam from the Meccans. The Prophet ﷺ, after giving Uthman the general instruction for the leaders of Quraysh, he gives him some specific instruction to take to the weak among the Muslims who were still living in Mecca. He told him to go to them and give them glad tidings, Bashair, the glad tidings of a fath from Allah, a victory from Allah Ta'ala, and to tell them the good news that Allah will very soon establish the deen in Mecca and they will not need to conceal their Islam any longer. And Uthman then goes to act as the negotiator. Now, 
We could tell that story, but it would take us over the time. So this is the part in the story where things start to get a little spicy, as we say, because there becomes, there's rumors that Uthman has been killed. Those rumors reach the Muslims, and then we have the culmination leading up to the actual sulh itself. So we're going to have to put a pause on the story for next week to tell that in some detail so we can flesh out the rest of the details concerning the actual peace treaty and the lessons we learn from it. Remembering that this peace treaty, it was called by Allah, Fathan Mubina, the clear victory. And that although the Muslims were unable to perform their Umrah that year and were disappointed, that sulh proved to be better for Islam in the long run. Because that was the way that Islam spread. And to give you some perspective here, consider what was the largest number of Muslims during the Battle of Ahzab? When they were, uh, how many fighters were there during the Battle of Ahzab? About 3,000. After the Sulh of Al Hudaybiyah, the number of people who eventually went from Medina to Mecca were 10,000. Fath Mubin, clear victory. So we're telling the story about disappointment, about what is in the interest of Islam versus the interest of Muslims in the moment and sacrificing the latter for the former and how things play out. There's so many lessons from, especially the second part of the story uh, next week, there's so many lessons about uh, the notions of obedience and adab to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and accepting the judgment and considering the interests of Islam over our own personal interests, even if those are interests connected with ibadah like Umrah. There's so many lessons, inshallah, that we'll cover as next week we begin the negotiations of Uthman, the delay, the rumor of him being killed, uh, the pledge, and ultimately the signing of a formal peace treaty that establishes a period of time where Islam can be called to openly, without any barriers, leading more people into Islam than ever before. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. He just heard exactly what uh, Budayr bin Warqa communicated, but he didn't have a sincere intention towards anything. He just wanted to, to push the Qurayshi agenda, and he wasn't successful because there was no trust built. He was seen as deceitful. So there was, there was no real benefit in negotiating with him. He wasn't budging, and he just goes back. It was the other who, uh, the second one, Hulais ibn Alqama, who interestingly didn't enter into any formal negotiations, but just seeing the camels and the cows with the garlands was enough for him to say, these people are in the right, they have a right to finish out the, the, the rights of the Umrah. Because think about it, once you're, when you're in Ihram, when can you leave the Ihram? You either perform the Umrah or you have to do the penalty to break the ihram uh, 
So he didn't want them to do that. He wanted them to fulfill the rights of the, the Umrah. And he was very offended at the fact that Quraysh were denying them this when clearly their intention was not to engage in any hostilities. They just want to do their Umrah, sacrifice the animals, and go straight back to Medina. So that's what he communicated, and you see what happens. We just insult him. Uh, from the, uh, the emissary from Cairo to the emissary from Cairo. What was the time? The emissary from. Oh, you mean the Urwa? Yeah. Urwa? Um, from the Sierra, we don't get an exact account of how, how many days, but it was, a, it was a period of days, especially between the time Uthman went. Yeah, because that was a delay, there were rumors of him being killed. Um, there's, you know, the theater works are, you know, very ambiguous often about dates, uh, often in the year of something happening, or at least the month, much less the, the hour or the day. Yeah. But we understand that there are some narrations that if you read them on the surface, you get the impression that it was actually. Uh, these other two individuals, Mikraz and uh, Hulais, that went before Urwa. But most of the narrations indicate that Urwa was the first choice and that others were sent uh, after he was rebuffed. Allah knows best. Not from, not from the Muslims, but from Khuza'a. So... The Khuza'a, as we said, were something of a neutral tribe. But when you read the Sira, you get the impression that they were more than just neutral. They really went out of their way to do what is in the best interest of the Muslims. And they had a lot of sincerity towards the Prophet and what was good for him and the Muslims. And But at the same time, they play this neutral role. Quraysh don't perceive them to be uh, allies the same way another ally would be who has a formal agreement to be with them and fight with them at the same time. So there's that neutral position in which they're perceived by Quraysh. So yeah, he wasn't a Muslim even. Yeah. 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 It becomes a more formal alliance. Yeah. It becomes a more formal alliance. Yeah. خير إن شاء الله وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه